Well, here in Revelation chapter 5, we're just kind of making our way through it as we've done in the last four chapters. Uh, We are continuing to experience the wonder and the worship that takes place around the throne of God in heaven. Of course, that really can be the the headings of both of those chapters. Uh, Chapter 4, you see some wonder and worship taking place there around the throne, all directed to the one sitting on the throne. Uh, But then in chapter 5, we see wonder and worship all focused on the Lamb of God, which of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this is the place where John was ushered in his vision, and that vision was extended after he saw what he was to write and hear what he was to write from chapters 2 and 3, actually chapters 1 through 3. And if you remember in chapter 4, the vision continued. Maybe it was more of an elevated or elevation in that particular vision. And we need to remember that there's a close connection between what John sees here in the throne room of heaven, chapters 4 and 5, and what John heard in chapters 2 and 3. A close connection to what he eventually writes to those churches. The scene before him in these chapters were meant to both exhort the churches that were struggling with purity within them, I think that's something that we see ongoing throughout this book and even in our own experience. Uh, We have a lot of churches that are struggling with purity. And so just the fact that God is pure and holy in the throne room of heaven ought to admonish and exhort God's people everywhere to be holy as he is holy, to be pure as he is pure. Uh, But these chapters are also, I think, meant to encourage the churches that were suffering through persecution. Uh, We saw two churches primarily that were faithful, yet they were faithful in the midst of the struggle of persecution, where people were oppressing them for their walk with God and their faithfulness to God. And so again, how encouraging is it to know that God is still on his throne, that God is still dealing with things in this world that we don't have to worry about. And so again, the connections between chapters 2 and 3 and chapters 4 and 5 are very close. We must not divorce those first chapters from the rest of the book. And now, Jesus is about to reveal to John what is to happen after the time of those churches to which he wrote. And the image that is given that we saw last Sunday is that of a scroll. And that scroll is sitting in the right hand of God the Father, who is the one sitting there on the throne. But we know that in order for that scroll to be opened and for the contents of that scroll to be unveiled, someone had to be found that was worthy and able to do so. And, of course, we saw in chapter chapter 5, verse 6, where we considered some last Sunday, a lamb was found, right? A lamb was found. And this lamb was also the same as the line of the tribe of Judah. So this is the Messiah. This is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that is qualified and capable to where we ended last Sunday in verse 7 to just come up to the throne, to the one sitting on the throne, to God the Father himself, and just take the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. And we would think, well, what audacity that would be for any other creature. But because this is the Lamb of God, who is no creature, he is the one who created all things, he had the right qualification and capability to just go up and take it, because it was his book as well. Now, as we go through the rest of this chapter, Uh, we immediately find three responses of praise. Three responses of praise, starting in verse 8, all the way through verse 14. And these three words of praise 
bring the total of hymns or songs of praise in chapters 4 and 5 to, to 5. We have five responses of praise to the Lord. In chapter 4, there were responses of praise to the one sitting on the throne. And now here in chapter 5, we have three more that are directed to the Lamb himself. Uh, again, these are we know this to be the Son of God because of the messianic titles that we considered last Sunday from verse 5. Jesus is the Lamb of the tribe of uh, the line of the tribe of Judah, and he is the root of David. And even though he will not start to open the scroll until the next chapter, chapter 6, just the fact that he is worthy to do so brings forth these three hymns of praise. Now, these three songs of praise, uh, in verse 9, the Greek word is ode. Uh, so, you know, you're familiar even in English with an ode to someone or an ode or a song to something. So these are three songs of praise, odes, and even though they begin from right before the throne, they will continue to grow and continue to swell until every creature is involved in this moving scene of worship. So you can almost see the concentric circles, just like if you were to throw a rock into a pond. And what happens as soon as it hits the pond, the ripples start to flow out. And that's what's happening with these songs of praise there in the throne room of heaven. As soon as the lamb is found who is able and worthy to open that scroll, the chorus starts with the creatures that are closest to the throne, and then it extends out further and further and further until it encompasses the entire creation, giving worship to the one who is worthy to open that scroll. So let's read again this response of worship, starting there in verses 8 through 10, which is the first song of worship offered by those closest to the throne who are the living ones, the, the beasts, as the King James puts it, the living ones and the elders. So picking up verse 8. And when he, the lamb, had taken the book, the four, four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials or bowls or even saucers full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So that is the first song of worship that begins by those beings closest to the throne. But the second song of worship is now offered by a vast choir of angels. So that ripple continues throughout heaven. And these angels are also encircled around the throne, and they sing with all their hearts, verse 11, And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the living ones and the elders. And the number of them, a number of these angels, was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So beyond a million. And he says, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. So verses 11 and 12, we find the second song of worship by the angels, which again accompany the worship of the living ones and the 24 elders. And then the ripple continues throughout heaven and even to the universe. The third song of worship is now offered by all creation to show to John once again that in heaven everything is as it is supposed to be. Now we know that in this world, not every creature worships God. 
Not every work creature has this song on their hearts. But this is John's vision. And he's seen something that ultimately will happen when every knee shall bow. But again, this is a display to John that everything in heaven is the way it's supposed to be. And so picking up there in verse 13, And every creature, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, God the Father, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. So we find the ripples of praise going and extending all throughout the universe. And then when we come to the very last verse of this chapter, the amazing scene and sound of worship ends where it starts. It goes right back to the center of the throne with the four living ones saying, Amen. So be it. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. What a privilege it was for John to experience all the sights and all the sounds of this heavenly worship of both the one sitting on the throne, God the Father, and the Lamb, who is God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what a privilege also it is for us to read and to hear about it ourselves. And of course, implied in all of this, just like we saw in chapter 4, implied in all of this is an invitation for God's people to join in with this praise, to join in with this worship, to join in with this chorus, so that it it continues to expand and and to swell into our own hearts as well. Uh, Remember, the, the purpose of Revelation is that there is a blessing that is bestowed not just on those who read it, not just on those who hear it, but also those who keep it. And part of keeping it is accepting these invitations when we find them. And these invitations are found all throughout the book of Revelation, where we enter into not just the vision, but we enter into the very acts that are taking place in the scenes of this vision. And this is one of those scenes, the scene of worship. And he says, come join, come join, be part of that chorus. And of course, all of these creatures declare, worthy is the Lamb. Now this morning, we're going to just explore the first response of worship, uh, which is again by the living ones and the elders, found in verses 8 through 10, and then we'll finish up chapter 5, Lord willing, next Sunday. But remember, this song is only the beginning. And so the worship will continue all through the universe that we find here in this chapter. So the first thing that we want to consider about this first song of praise is the setting of worship. The setting of worship. Uh, so go back to verse 8. Okay, we have the, uh, the, the silence in heaven just before the ripple of praise begins. And it says, When he, the lamb, the one who is both lion and lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, when he had taken the book, and of course he was qualified and capable to do so, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. Now, obviously, the reason for worship is the action of the Lamb in that verse. He took it, right? He took that book. Again, that that action would have been very audacious if it was anyone but the Lamb who was qualified to do so. But this action immediately brings about the response of worship and praise by these living creatures that we were introduced to already in chapter 4, the four living ones and the 24 elders. Now, we learn a little bit more about the elders here, and so we can kind of add to what we've learned in chapter 4 about them 
what we learn here. So as soon as the lamb takes the scroll, all of these creatures fall down before the lamb. And of course, that is a position of worship, isn't it? Uh, in fact, we're going to find many occasions where people are falling down before others in the book of Revelation. John actually falls down before some of these same creatures. And he's told, don't fall down and worship us. Get up because you need to only worship God. And so we see the temptation of mankind to fall down and worship others besides God. But here they worship a right. They worship falling down before God in this position of worship. Now, in chapter 4, it was just the elders who were, we were told, fell down to worship. And, of course, that was before the, the throne, the central throne, before the one sitting on the throne, God the Father. Here in chapter 5, the picture is both the elders and the living ones falling down and kneeling and, and really bowing before God in a prostrate position. And, of course, that shows the great honor that the Lamb deserves. He deserves this worship from every creature that is represented by those creatures who are in heaven. Now, this is one of the things about visions is you kind of have to, you know, fill in some of the gaps. Because obviously in chapter 4, the elders fell down. And now here in chapter 5, the elders and the living ones fall down. So at some point in between... Chapters 4 and 5, the elders had to have gotten back up. So we see a, a continuous worship and bowing down before God. Uh, we're not told explicitly that they do that or when they do that or even how they do that. Um, but, you know, we our minds sometimes fill in the gaps of this kind of vision. And that's similar to even our own dreams, uh, where sometimes the connection between points in our dreams may not always be so clear to us. And, you know, there might have been some of that, uh, lack of clarity as well in John's vision. Uh, but at some point, the elders had risen so that they might fall again in worship of the Lamb. And so that's the setting. That's the setting of this very first song and hymn of worship. But then when we come to the rest of verse 8, we find the supplies of worship. So uh, they actually bring something with them to worship the Lord, to worship the Lamb. The supplies of worship. Again, what, are they, what, what do they have? Uh, we're told that they have every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So there's two different objects mentioned here that are used in the worship of the Lamb. We have harps and these golden vials. Um, there are some who have suggested that both the living ones and the elders had these objects in their hands. Um, more than likely, though, this is all referring to the 24 elders. Uh, in fact, the, the Greek word that underlines the verb having, uh, it's a participle. It's the, the Greek word is echo. It refers directly to the elders uh, because in our, in our English language, uh, we don't have what a lot of other languages have where words have gender. For example, uh, if you, you know, talked about a book, okay, a book, a logos, uh, that by the ending you can tell has a masculine ending. And so when you have a noun that has a masculine ending, you're going to have a verb with the same kind of ending, a masculine ending. And, and same with, with the feminine, or then there's a neuter gender as well. Um, the living ones is actually considered a, a neuter term. It's a neuter noun. It has that neuter ending to it. 
Whereas having here has the masculine ending, which refers to the elders, which is presbuteroi, which is also a masculine ending. So more than likely, this phrase, having the supplies of worship, just because of the gender of that participle, of that Greek verb, points not back to both of those groups, but just the groups of the elders. Um, so that's kind of what we can picture in our minds as well. Now, in chapter 4, the elders had another supply of worship. And what was that? You remember what they had? They had it on their head. They had crowns. And not just any crowns, they had golden crowns. And what did they do with those crowns? They cast them. They cast them to, before the feet of the one that was sitting there on the throne. That's right. So now, now they have their hands full again. So um, maybe, maybe they did have them at, the, at, at, at that time, or maybe this is something that is new and appears in this vision, but now they have their hands full. Uh, they no longer have their crown on their head, or maybe they took it back up to cast it down again. But now they have a harp in one hand, and they have a bowl in the other. And all 24 of these elders would have them because they're going to use them in worship for the Lord. So what were these harps for? What were these harps for? Well, obviously harps were a, a, certainly an instrument back then and even today that would offer pleasing sounds in their worship of the Lord. In, in some sense, our piano is like a giant harp. Though in, in, instead of strumming it, it is struck by those hammers to bring forth that, that, that sound. And so what a, a pleasing sound they were able to offer and to really bring with their words in their worship of the Lord. Uh, these harps would have been used to accompany their worship, uh, just like it was done in the Old Testament times. In fact, harps are found some 50 times all throughout the Bible, often connected with the worship of God. And of course, we know that there was one in particular in the Old Testament that was known for playing the harp before the Lord. Who was that? King David, that's right. In fact, many of the songs were probably accompanied by those harps as they were singing their praise and worship to the Lord. Uh, in Revelation, harps are found only three times. Uh, here in chapter 5, verse 8, Another time we will find it is in chapter 14, verse 2, and then the third and last time is in chapter 15, verse 2. Each time a harp is mentioned in the book of Revelation, it accompanies other songs that are, worship, that are offered in worship to both the Lamb and to the Lord. So harps in Revelation are basically symbols of praise and worship and even joy in the presence of God to give Him the praise and the glory that He is due. So the harp is a regular symbol for praise and joy. The harp is a regular symbol for praise and joy. Now, of course, that's something that, that we reflect in our own, our, our own uh, music, in our own worship. Um, instruments are not the means of that worship. Instruments are a way to accompany that worship. Uh, the worship is not something that can be done by something that is an object, Worship can only be done in the heart of someone that has experienced the grace and goodness of God and has responded to that. And that is what worship is. When we come together in church, we are responding to who God is, what he's done for us, and these are just accompaniments to that worship. They, they help us worship together in that way. And so we need to make sure that we know that these are just symbols for worship and praise, not praise and worship in and of themselves. But then we have that other object, that second object that they used in their worship, and that, uh, that are the bowls. That's the bowls or the vials. 
these offer pleasing smells in the worship of the Lord. Uh, now, of course, that's something that, you know, if you remember last year when we looked at Christ in the Old Testament and Christ in the tabernacle and Christ in the temple, and there were a few objects in the temple that were used to offer pleasing smells and aromas before God. Of course, the, the one just before you got into the temple or tabernacle itself was the, the altar of burnt offering. And how many times as you go through the Old Testament do you read that what was offered on those altars was a pleasing aroma, a pleasing scent to the Lord? You know, we kind of get a feel for that uh, when you go outside and you smell somebody grilling some meat on the grill, right? <laughs> it smells good to you. Well, I'm not sure exactly that's what God is thinking. Oh, great. Something, you know, good, good to eat on the grill. But no, it was a, a pleasing smell because it showed that people's hearts were rent for their sin and they knew that they, a, a sacrifice had to be made. And so it pointed to the Lord Jesus. But then there was that other altar. And we're going to find this altar elsewhere in the book of Revelation. That's known as the golden altar, the altar of incense. And that is where in the tabernacle and in the temple just before the, the curtain, they would offer this incense in order to bring that fragrance into the temple itself. And that smoke of the incense would actually go beyond the curtain into the holy of, the holy of holies as well, into the presence of God. So that's what we have here. The, a picture of these bowls to offer pleasing smells in their worship of the Lord. Now this is the first time out of 11 times in Revelation where bowls or vials are mentioned. Uh, the Greek word is fiale. Uh, by the word, that is in the, the feminine gender, so that would take a feminine verb if you were to see it that way. Um, but fiale, um, the interesting thing is that every other time it's found in Revelation, it describes the bowls that are full of God's wrath. This is the only time where that word describes something in which incense is placed or anything else is placed. That's kind of an interesting uh, difference there. Um, the word translated here fiale, for fiale could also mean saucer. So it, instead of, you know, like a cereal bowl that you might have in your cabinet, uh, it could be like a, a saucer upon which they would have put incense. Um, but here, these, these bowls are also precious, aren't they? Because what are they made up of? They're made up of gold, just like the golden crowns. Here we have the golden bowls full of odors, full of incense. Now, this is another time in Revelation where the object, this bowl that is full of incense, is actually defined in its symbolic meaning. Uh, there are a lot of things in Revelation that are symbols that you just don't really you know, you have to dig a little deeper to find out what they mean. But here it's right out there, okay? So the bowl full of incense is a symbol of what? Look at the verse. Which are the prayers of saints. So when you see a bowl full of incense or you even hear about incense, guess what that is? It's a symbol of prayers, the prayers of God's people. That's, that's what a saint is. Uh, in fact, um, a saint is, is, um, comes from the Greek word hagios, which simply means holy. So these are the prayers of the saints. And a saint is someone who bears the character, the holy character of God, upon them and in them. And so in Revelation, not only does holy, hagios, describe the character of God, 
It can also refer to those who bear the character of God as it does here. So it's talking about the prayers of God's people. Now, incense and prayer are, are, are very closely connected in both the Old and New Testaments in many different ways and in many different places. Uh, one instance is found in the Gospel of Luke. So keep your finger here and go back with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, because I think this actually ties the use of incense in both the Old and in the New Testament, because it's kind of right there in the middle, right? Uh, we have B.C. for before Christ, and then we have A.D., which is Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And right in between, we have sort of this transition period from the Old to the New. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, we know that just before Jesus came, just before even John the Baptist came on the scene, John the Baptist's own father, Zechariah, was taking his turn to serve at the temple. Of course, he was a priest there. And we're told in Luke 1.10 that the whole multitude of the people were praying without, outside the temple, at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And so one of the reasons why it was called the time of the incense was, or, and the time of prayer or the time of incense that they were praying at that time was because of what Zechariah was doing there. So that's just one connection between prayer and incense throughout the Bible. Uh, and there are, of course, many, many others as well. So the worship that the elders offer to the Lord involved both praise with their harps and prayer with these bowls. And that's something for us to remember. Worship is not just praise, is it? Worship actually does involve prayer. As we pray to the Lord, we're actually showing our dependence upon the Lord if we pray rightly. And that is part of worship because it shows our heart's response to the Lord. So those who believe in and belong to the Lord Jesus Christ are saints. And now we have our prayers represented in heaven itself. Now, these elders, as we saw from chapter 4, most likely re represent us as God's people in the worship that is going on in heaven. In one way or fashion, they represent us in the way worship is supposed to be in heaven. We know that we don't worship aright, right? But here in this vision, we see that there is a representative, there's, there's 24 representatives that actually worship the right way for us with both praise and prayer. And both the praise and prayers that we offer here are actually offered there and are received as precious and pleasing to the Lord and to the Lamb. So that is the 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 objects of worship, the supplies of worship, not just the golden crowns that were on their hand, but also the, the harp. We're not told if it was golden, but we also have the golden vials that are full of the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so that's what they bring to the Lord in worship. But then, of course, now we come in verse 9 to the very song, the very song of worship. And we're told there that they sung what kind of song? A new song. That's right, a new song. Again, the word for song here is ode. So they sung a new ode to the lamb. Uh, the verb sung is actually related to the noun for song. We could even say that they oded an ode. 
or they oded with an ode. So they sang a new song. But this new song reminds us of what we find back in the Psalms, uh, where in Psalm 96.1 and so many others, we're told, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. A new song. Now, the newness of this song does not refer to the style of the song. It refers to the content of the song. There was something new for them to sing about. It's a new song because of the content of the song. It, it was something that was new and fresh because of something new and fresh that they saw there around the throne, because of the new activity that they witnessed before the throne. It was new even compared to the songs of chapter 4, because these are new because they're directed to the Lamb. So in a similar way, our hymns and our spiritual songs are new when they flow out of a fresh, new experience of God's activity in our lives. You know, that's one of the reasons why I think it is important for us to not only learn the songs and the hymns that we sing, but also the story behind some of those songs and hymns that we sing. Because they're new songs. They're new because whoever wrote that song experienced the truths of that song in a new and a fresh way. And so they're bringing that truth back to the Lord in an ode, in a hymn of praise to him. Now, it is possible that this new song is being sung by both the living ones and the elders. Uh, but again, it's probably best to hear it coming from the, just the elders themselves because of what I mentioned before. Uh, they were the ones that were referred to who had the harps and bowls in their hands. But also, because of the content of their song, which we'll consider in just a moment, the essence of the song is, verse 9, Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Now, if you remember back in chapter 4, verse 11, the one who was sitting on the throne was worthy. So God the Father sitting on the throne was worthy, and now, here in chapter 5, verse 9, we recognize that so is the Lamb. He too is worthy. Does anybody remember what worthy means? We looked at this in chapter 4. What's that? Okay, yeah, he's, he's worthy, he's, he's qualified, right? That's another way of looking at it. He's deserving, uh, and because of that, he is someone of value. So worthy means to be deserving because of the value and the qualification that he brings. And what is the Lamb of, of God here worthy to do? He's worthy to receive the scroll. Okay, he already took it, all right? And now to open its seals. So he's already taken it, and he's just about to open it. And of course, that is what John and everyone else who's ever read the book of Revelation anticipates. <laughs> we want to know what's in the scroll. We want to hear about what's going to happen when the scroll is opened. And in the rest of the song, we actually find three things that made the Lamb worthy, deserving to finally open the scroll. And it's all introduced with the word for there in verse 9. Uh, the word for, F-O-R, is a translation of the Greek word hati, which simply means because. And there are three reasons why the lamb is worthy to receive and open the scroll. Three becauses, and they're all joined with and. And so the first reason is that the lamb is worthy to receive and open the scroll because of his sacrifice. For thou wast slain, or because thou wast slain. And guess what? They're singing this to the Lamb. 
They're not just singing it to themselves. They're not just singing it to the rest of the people in heaven or, or in creation. They're singing this to the Lord. So that is part of praise, isn't it? We sing back to the Lord what he's done for us. He was worthy because of his sacrifice. Of course, uh, this points us back to what John saw in verse 6. He saw this lamb as it had been slain. And that death is what qualified him and made him worthy to receive and to open the scroll. But we can also see from this that before the lamb could open the scroll, he had to be slain and sacrificed. It was because of this. The rest of history could not unfold until the fullness of time had come and Jesus was born of a woman, of, of a woman made under the law to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, Jesus had to fulfill his role as the sacrificial lamb to be sacrificed and slain as the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. So the lamb is worthy, first of all, because of his great sacrifice. He is the lamb who was slain. But the lamb is also worthy because, so we have another and here, because of his salvation. His salvation itself that was made available through his sacrifice. So why else is he worthy? Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. That's salvation, is it? Redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when we first learned about the elders, we also learned that the Greek text underlying this verse is a little different, depending on what manuscript tradition that you hold to. Um, the, the received text, or the majority text, which is um, basically what the King James and the New King James is based off of, um, it looks at the totality of Greek manuscripts that are available. And there are hundreds and even thousands of Greek manuscripts that have withstood time for 2,000 years that we have of the entire New Testament. Um, there's several hundred uh, in part and in total that we have of the book of Revelation. So the majority text or received text tradition looks at all of the Greek manuscripts and basically they look at all of the witnesses and say, okay, the majority wins, the majority rules. <laughs> um, it's not so democratic as that. Uh, basically, those who hold to the majority text, including myself, uh, see that this is how God preserved the text through the testimony of his churches over time. And so the more church witnesses that through the Spirit have you know, said this is the, the text that was passed on from John all the way back in the beginning, they would say this is the text that we'll go off of. What do we find in this verse? Well, it says that... This lamb has redeemed us, in verse 9, and has made us kings and priests, in verse 10. Now, if you have a, a King James or a New King James, you know, that's what we just read. That's what we're most familiar with. But there is another Greek manuscript tradition known as the critical tradition. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're liberal. It doesn't mean that they don't believe in the Bible. They just kind of look at the, the text that we have in a little different way. They attempt to look at what they consider to be the oldest Greek witnesses in order to uncover the original. That is what John was given by the Lord. And so they would look at dates on some of these Greek manuscripts. And we have some very old manuscripts that were written on papyrus, you know, back in the second and third centuries that are very, very old. It might have a little different wording of this verse than the vast majority of manuscripts. And so there's that, 
that uh, decision. You have to decide which are you going to go with. Uh, most modern translations, including the English Standard Version, the ESV, or the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, or even the NIV, the New International Version, and a lot of others, in verse 9, instead of having redeemed us, which again, that would be the elders saying this, they're saying you have redeemed people. So they're not describing themselves, they're describing others. And then in verse 10, instead of made us kings and priests, they're saying and singing, you have made them kings and priests. And so as I mentioned, this, is, um, this phrase and really this song in chapter 5 doesn't really help us as far as the Greek text goes to uncover who these elders really are, whether they're people or some kind of angelic being um, because of the difference in the text themselves. Um, but I do hold to that majority text tradition, which is reflected in the King James and the New King James. And what I, I don't see them as people, but as representatives of God's people. Uh, there's some other reasons why we can look at them. We saw this back in chapter 4 when we were first introduced to them. Um, that there's some kind of elevated, high, angelic being. Um, but what they are, whether they're angels or men, okay, whichever way you look at it, they are there to represent God's people of all ages in order to bring the true worship and praise to God that he is due. So the main, here, the main point here is not the identification of the elders, but the redemption of the lamb that makes him worthy to open the scroll. And so whether it was their salvation or our salvation, it's all about salvation. That's what makes the lamb qualified to open the scroll. He gives salvation to those who believe in him. And we can see that his redemption is both expensive and extensive. In fact, his, his redemption is expensive because it came at what cost? What price? The price of what? His life, according to the text there, by thy blood that was shed. That's an expensive redemption, isn't it? Not by gold or silver or any such thing, but by the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. But at the same time, not only is his redemption expensive, it is also extensive because it applies to people, again, verse 9, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This phrase gives us four descriptions of people groups. Kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And this phrase actually has a root back in the Old Testament, just like so much of what we find in the book of Revelation. In fact, this phrase points back to the book of Daniel, where several times commands are given by the king of Babylon to all people, nations, and languages. Obviously, the language was, back, was different back then. It was Hebrew or Aramaic. Um, but here we have a third category of people group added in, in the book of Revelation. In Daniel, the phrase people, nations, and languages is found in chapter 3, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 29. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? <laughs> and they were commanded by the king of Babylon that when you hear the sound of the trumpet and da-da-da-da-da-da, all this music, every person who was of the people, nations, and languages had to do what? bow down and worship the image that was set up, right? Now, there's an interesting connection that we will see ongoing in the book of Revelation that these 
groups. This fo these four descriptions of people groups really are a symbol of all mankind, the world as a whole. And so the picture is that the Lamb actually redeemed for himself out of the entire world. Every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Now the last time that this phrase, people, nations, and languages, is found in the book of Daniel, it actually talks about the reign of Christ. So again, keep your finger here in, in Revelation. Go back with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Again, the, the Son of Man, referring to Jesus, comes with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. And there was given him dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all people, all nations, all languages should serve him. And now when we come back here to Revelation, isn't that what we also see here? That the Lamb redeemed for himself a people from all kindreds, all tongues, all peoples, and all nations. Now, obviously, instead of three descriptions, here in Revelation we have four. Now, the number four in Revelation is significant because it shows universality. It shows something that is absolutely complete. Um, we'll get to this in chapter six, but just like when you talk about how uh, there are four angels that are standing at the four corners of the earth, that's just a simple way of saying the entire world, all right? And where do they get the four corners of the earth? Well, because they have the four winds of heaven, the four points on the compass, which are north, south, east, and west. And so when you talk about that entirety of the world, that number four is significant in Revelation because it shows universality and completeness, and that's what we have here. You see, in, in Babylon, as, as Art was describing earlier, they had a worldwide reign, but it didn't extend to all of the world. This reign of Christ and this redemption of Christ extends to the whole world, all of mankind. Now, this, uh, these four descriptions, kindreds, tongues, peoples, nations, are found elsewhere in Revelation three other times, uh, but in a different order. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 11, verse 9, chapter 14, verse 6, it does have all four descriptions, just in a little different order. Um, but even though there is some overlap in these descriptions, you might uh, describe what these words mean in this sense. Um, a kindred or a tribe is another way it could be translated, might refer to your family group. So this would be the, the family group that you, were, that you come from, just like the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 kindreds of Israel. Uh, tongues obviously refer to your language group, right? You may not be of the same tribe, but you could be of the same language. Uh, peoples probably refers to political political groups. You know, we, we might all be Americans, but we might all speak different languages. I mean, we have a lot of languages that are spoken in this country. And nations would refer to your ethnic group. Um, so not just the family that you're in, but the, the great um, ethnicity that you are in, and if you keep on going far back. Altogether, they mean and include the entire scope of mankind and is a symbol of the world of people as a whole. Which means that there is no people group excluded from the Lamb's work of redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had to just hear the praise that is ongoing there in heaven, Lord. A, a praise and a worship that, that the one who is able to open the, the scroll and to release the seals 
has been found and he is worthy. He is worthy because of the salvation that he has wrought as well as the sacrifice that he has made. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to enter into that worship today with all of our hearts. That Lord, we will just remember that out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, you have chosen us to be part of that worship and to be part of that family, to be part of the kingdom. And now, Father, I pray that you'll help us to live in that way and to rejoice in what you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, that you'll bless our service to follow. For it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.